0: So, Father, just, just as we learned last week that you rejoice over us with singing, we come to you rejoicing over you with our sing- song, because you are good, the creator of all things, the one who formed and designed me and each of us, the one who had us in mind before you even created the universe and who created us for intimate relationship, and so we give thanks for who you are, and we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Yeah, I noticed, uh, if you didn't notice, Al is in the house. Al, I didn't see where you sat down. There he is, back over there. So, good to have you back uh, visiting. So, um, Al, if you are new or have been here in the last year, Al was uh, the pastor here for a long time, Al, for a long, long time, what, 20 20 some years how many 24. 24 years and so we uh again the bible says we give praise to god but we give honor to men and so um he just just did such a great job of stewarding this body so could we just welcome him with some applause <laughs> without so make sure you uh you know, if you want to say hi, say I'll grab him before, you know, between services. And I just want you to know, I noticed you're wearing jeans today. You totally inspired me, Al. I ran home and changed when I saw you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just a reminder, we are in Advent season. And like we've done the last several years, we, we don't want to fit the culture. I told you, I grew up in this culture totally missing the point of Christmas, and we don't want to be that way as followers of Jesus, right? We want to live the Advent conspiracy, so there is the insert in your bulletin. If you didn't, if you weren't here last week, um, it's just some activities that you can do that the church is doing as a whole, some things you can do as a small group, some things you can do as a family to live into the Advent season, Um, because our goal during Advent is we want to worship fully, we want to spend less, we want to give more, and we want to love all, and so this is a a good way to do that. If you're, if you want even more ideas than this, we've got a whole sheet in the back information booth that even has some more activity, some ideas if you want some other things to look at. So, encourage you to uh, take advantage of that. Hey, a couple of things. Um, You know, we finished several weeks back the series that we did on idolatry, the real Game of Thrones, and just want to let you guys know, we had the small groups Evaluate that, because it was a sermon-based series, and wanting to know, you know if it was something we ever wanted to try again. So again, thank you to all of you who are in a small group for, for allowing us to do that experiment. Um, but from the results, 74 percent of the people in the small group gave it a thumbs up. Um, there was a thumbs- up, a sideways or a thumbs-down. Only four percent gave it a thumbs down, so that's, that's good. So two out of three of the people. Gave it a thumbs up, and then we asked the question, do you ever want to do a sermon-based series again? And 82% said yes to that. Only 2% said no. And the, the key thing with teaching, anytime you're teaching the Word of God is what you want is it to impact lives and make, you know, you want the, the, the rubber to meet the road. If I'm just talking, what's, what's the point of that? And we asked the question, because our four goals, if you remember, was we wanted people to understand idolatry more. To identify what their idols were to begin the process of repenting of them and then gaining freedom from them. And you can see 100% said they had a better understanding, 93% said they were able to identify their idols, uh, 97% repented or were in the process, we're doing that, and 97% understood and we're making movement towards gaining freedom. So that's, uh, that's just exciting and I wanted to share that with you guys. You know, we did the Common Sunday a few weeks back. And if you heard that and you're not in a small group, I really challenge you that the way to really, I think, help those things really become internalized, I think, is in the setting of a s- small group. So encourage you when we do that in the future, have signups that you would do that. Another thing interesting, I don't, I mean, talking up front about funerals is not the most exciting thing. I think we've had, I don't remember how many we've had this year, but when we've done the funerals, because um, a funeral changed my life. It was the beginning of my journey to Christ, because I realized I didn't know where I was going and what was after, and it propelled me on a spiritual journey, that and another thing. But um, so for a funeral to me, they're very meaningful, because that's what it was for me. And we, at the funerals I've done this year, we have made available the Gospel of Mark in the Life Book, which the Gideons publish, and also a pamphlet called The Story, that we put with that, that talks about the story of God and how to, about coming to Jesus, and because the story of God is all about, the G, about Jesus. And we have put those out at the funeral, and in the funerals we've had this year, 412 of those were picked up by individuals. Isn't that amazing that that many people, out of a hunger or a curiosity, on their way out grabbed, grabbed one of those? If you weren't here last week, Tim Wright's funeral alone, 52 individuals, grabbed a gospel of Mark and a pamphlet on the way out, and so just want to let you guys know, God is at work, and He came to seek and save the lost, and that's our mission too, and so anytime we're doing anything that is part of that mission, isn't that exciting that God is at work in that way, so, okay, yeah, that's, we give praise to God, right? All right, so... Um, we're continuing the, our Advent series, and it's the question, what is the meaning of Christmas? Because as I told you, I grew up like the Grinch, and I grew up like Lucy, that I had no clue what it was about, and how when I came to my own journey and came to the Bible, what I discovered, and that's, that's what this series really is. And so, that's why uh, we're doing the nine words of Christmas, and I really encourage you. We made the postcards. Um, Invite a friend to this. There were several new people that were here last week, but this is a great opportunity for somebody to really get the core message of the Bible, especially last week. If you were to ask me to deliver like one message to a group of people who did not know God, last week is what I would say to them, because it was the core of what I found. If you weren't here last week, I really encourage you and challenge you, uh, and this is not self-promotion, but to get the flow of all of this, to to get online and listen to that first one. Um, by the way, I forgot my sermon notes. I need to grab my sermon notes for this week, so if you don't mind. No, last week was, yeah, my eyesight's getting worse, so I need bigger pages. Last week, the, the first three words of Christmas were this, were the, is God, that God is for us. And if you remember, we talked about that God is the creator of all things, and specifically the Bible says that He formed and created each of us and were wonderfully and amazingly made. And that not only did He form and create us, but that He loves us, that He loves us even before we were born, the Bible says, even before He created the universe, that He had us on His mind. And He designed us for relationship, and we talked about His passionate love for us, how He rejoices over us with singing, He loves us with an everlasting love, and we hit some of those Scripture that I really love. And then that God created, that everything He creates is for a purpose. And He created us for a purpose. And you guys remember what is that purpose He created us for? Somebody shout it out. To love Him. him. Yeah. Because what I learned is the Bible isn't about religion, but it's it's about relationship. It's about relationship. So He created us to live in that relationship with Him. And we are created to do that, to love Him above all else. And so... We talked about that, and that He, do you remember the three relationships the Bible compares it to that He wants to have with us? Uh, he wants to, I'll do the first one, He wants to have a father-child relationship. I talked about my own relationship with my children. Do you remember the second one? Yeah, marriage, husband and wife, that kind of a passionate love. And then the third was friends, friendship, that God wants to be our friend, which is amazing, that the creator of the universe. Um, and then we talked about the way God draws people into that relationship, that He rarely comes to people in your face, but He comes to us with, do you remember the word, really important? Yeah, woo, good job. And so we talked about, we talked about woo. Somebody told me a woo story this week. Jordan, I got last Sunday, I got to hear Jordan's woo stories about Katie. Uh... <laughs> Not very successful woo, right? That was uh, <laughs> just the first several times when he tried to woo her, she was just like, uh, no, uh, no, I won't go there. I won't do that. I, whatever. It was just, it was pretty funny to hear their story. So, the first three words of Christmas are God for us, um, that God created us, and He loves us, and that God is for us. All right. All um, right. I have, yeah, that we were created for a real and intimate relationship with God, that He loves me and He seeks my love in return. Um, And I have bad news. I feel a little bit like a salesman who who wasn't fully honest, because this week I don't have three words for you. You're going to have to come back next week to get words four, five, and six, and then the Sunday before Christmas to get seven, eight, and nine. But this is really important. Just as last week was really important, this week is really important. And in any good story, because the Bible is a story, there's always conflict that comes in, right? Good stories aren't just good stories from beginning to end. They start great, and then some conflict enters, and that's really what the story of the Bible is, is that there's some bad news that enters following the good news that we talked about last week. So even though we were created for a relationship with God, we've rejected God, and we've lived life for ourselves pursuing other things. That's what the Bible says. Though He created us for a relationship, we have rejected Him and have lived life for ourselves pursuing other things. This is what the Bible calls sin. Or what we just finished in the series, I mean this, so this living life for myself pursuing other things. Um, yeah, we'll come to that in a second. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we have, how many? We have all wandered away. Each one of us has gone his own way. How many of us are dirty with sin? The Bible says that we're all dirty with sin. Every single human being, this is their story. Created by God, created for relationship, but all of us have rejected that, and we've lived life for ourselves pursuing other things. And I want to talk for a minute. We're going to come back, because if you remember, this is what idolatry is, right? We talked about that, that idolatry is that I decide I'm going to live, rather than for that relationship, I'm going to live for something of my choosing and pursue something of my choosing. And we talked about, when we talked about idolatry, that in the Bible, sin is primarily not rule-breaking, but what? Not rule-breaking, but relationship-breaking. And I talked about the fact that I believe that idolatry is the primary way the Bible talks about sin, but I want to, but it's not the only way, and I want to fill this out a little bit, Um, because this was stuff I needed to hear when I was coming to the Bible. When the Bible talks about sin… It actually talks about it, um, we could say, in four different ways. It talks about my outward behavior, but it also talks about my inward thoughts. The Bible also talks about sin as doing bad things I should not do, which we would call sins of commission, if you were to give a phrase to it. But then it also talks about this interesting, this concept of it's also not doing good things that I should do. And these are four words in the Bible that are used for sin. The word transgression, iniquity, miss the mark, which is a translation of one Greek word, but to miss the mark and hypocrisy. So, can I briefly hit these? Because I think to really understand how we've broken the relationship with God, we need to understand sin a little more fully. So, I want to start first with transgression. Transgress means to cross a line. Like God draws a line and says, don't do this kind of thing, and I cross that line, I transgress it. Things like stealing, lying, gossiping, cheating. Complaining, um, and God's lines are not arbitrary; they're based on His character. So when God says, "Do not lie," it's because He's the God of truth. That's who He is. And to lie is to go contrary to His character and the design of everything that He created. So transgression is its outward behavior—things that I do that are wrong that I shouldn't do. But the Bible also talks about our inward thoughts, and the Hebrew word that's translated "iniquity" talks about this. It's talking about the about our heart. Things that happen inwardly that nobody knows is going on. Hating somebody, jealousy, lusting, judging, comparing myself to others are all things that can happen inwardly that nobody knows about. Um, I've often asked people, I mean, I've done, when I've talked about this with international students, I've often asked them, how would you like to to wear an iPad uh, around your neck that shows everything you're thinking throughout the day? How many of you, for, for a million dollars, would do that? Yeah, nobody, right? Nobody. Because even right now, if you guys had your iPads that you were wearing, there would be a few of them that would already say, this is so boring, I'm, you know, chiefs are at what time? Three, I think, today against the Patriots, or how can we get out of here faster, whatever, okay? But we all have this, these things going on inwardly that nobody knows about, that we're aware of. But what I love about the Bible is it doesn't just talk about sin as doing bad, uh, bad behavior, or things I shouldn't think, but it also talks about sin in terms of not doing the good I'm created to do. And it's the Greek word for miss the mark, like if you were, uh, you know, doing archery and you're shooting at a target, and if you fall short by 10 yards of the target, you fall short, you miss the mark. Um, The passage in Romans… Um, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, is the, it's this word, it's to miss the mark, it's to fall short of Him. So, it's to fall short of something God has designed us to do. Um, and you know what? I, this was actually supposed to come before that one. I'm sorry. Can, I just want to take a minute because this is, these are some things the Bible talks about are sins of the heart, and I'm going to come back to miss the mark. But just take a minute and look at this list and see if any of those things happen inside of, of your own heart. pretty humbling, huh? The condition of our heart, the iniquity that I think we all struggle with. Um, And then now getting to miss the mark. The Bible tells us to love God and to love our neighbor. And to not love God and to not love your neighbor is to miss the mark. It's not to do things we're created to do. If you see somebody in need of help And it just would be an inconvenience to you, and you just pass by as if you don't see. That is to miss the mark. It's to not offer a good that we're intended to do. There's another way that we, this fitting the category, that's more the internal and it's hypocrisy. And you guys know what that is, pretending to be one thing on the outside while being another thing on the inside. Um, So, what I'm doing with this one is I'm showing the outward behavior of doing the good that I'm required to do. Does that make sense? So, the thing I'm supposed to do, I'm doing it, but internally, the reason I'm doing it is the wrong motivation. So, maybe, maybe I see a person that's needing help, and in my heart, I'm just going to ignore them because it's inconvenient. And then somebody I know comes along, and I'm like, oh my gosh, if they see me ignore that person, that doesn't look good. So, then I step in, and I do the good thing, and I help the person, but my motivation is purely to give the appearance to my friend that I'm doing it for the right reason, but the truth is I'm not. Does that make sense? So it's to pretend outwardly to do the good, but internally I'm not doing the good thing. So these are this is how the Bible talks about sin. So let me ask you a question. When you think of sin, or when most people think of sin, which of these four quadrants do most people think of as sin in their mind? What would you say? Transgression, iniquity, miss the mark, or hypocrisy. What when people hear the word sin, what is the main thing in their mind? transgression i totally agree interestingly if you work with people of other cultures the word for sin in almost every asian culture means to do an outward behavior that's wrong it's total their word totally means just that one quadrant now while all of these are sin if god were to show us the ones that to him are most important you know which ones he would point out i think he'd point out these because the Bible says man looks at the outward, but God looks at the, at the heart. Jesus, when He says, you have heard, don't commit adultery, but I tell you that if you lust in your heart, He's taking it deeper. Jesus says that all of our sinful behavior starts in the heart. So the emphasis to God, it's not that outward behavior is not sin, but to God, his, to Him, the emphasis is those heart things. And the other one is, is I think the emphasis is on the not doing the good that we should. And I'm going to come back to in a minute, and I want to explain that one, why I think that one is also so important to Him. So, I think the way we think about sin is is, um, it doesn't fit the Bible very well. It is one category, but the main way we think about it, I don't think is the main way that God thinks about it. And here's what I want to bring us back to, which I talked about last year, because again, Christianity is not about religion, but it's about what? It's about relationships, So I want to bring us back with this concept of sin to relationship because we have to think relationally. And so often, I think when we think of sin, we think of breaking rules, that transgression, and we don't think relationally. And so, we've got to always come back to that. Frequently, when I talk to people who don't know God, they want to talk about sin in a a non-relational way, kind of a, a breaking the rule or kind of the business deal, like you're breaking a transaction kind of thing. And I've got to constantly bring people back the idea, you've got to think relationally about it. You've got to think about relationship. And so, here's what I want to do with that. I want to ask the question, what do you think is the greatest sin? I've asked a lot of lost people this over the years, and You could probably imagine the things I normally get: murder, like kidnapping, kidnapping and murder, right? Things like that. Do you know what? If we were asked God, what is the greatest sin? What do you think God would say? Yeah, you nailed it. God would say it's this one down here, in this quadrant, not loving God. And here's how. There's why I think that because in the Bible. Here's what it says, when Jesus was asked what's the greatest thing that God wants? He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. This is the first and the greatest command. And if that is the first and the greatest command, then what is the greatest sin? Not loving Him, not being in relationship with Him. You nailed it. So that's what the greatest sin is. And so that is why this definition that we reject God, I reject that relationship, I live life for myself, pursuing out of love other things. And remember, that's what idolatry is. I, there is something that I love more than Him, and it's first in my life. And so, idolatry really is the greatest sin. It is that pursuit of things other than God. And do you remember one of the sermons we did in idolatry was about, do you remember Naomi and Gomer? And Naomi and Gomer is all about idolatry, and it's all about comparing it to spiritual adultery. And again, I just want to remind you that sin really is spiritual adultery, so, if you don't mind, I want to I wanna come back to that story because sin, primarily, we need to think of it in terms of relationship, breaking relationship. So, if you weren't here back then or you don't know the story of Hosea and Gomer, um, God had told Hosea to marry this woman, Gomer, and so He married her. And after they had gotten married, um, she committed adultery with some dude. We don't know who that guy was, but she left um, Hosea and went and married him. And we all know relationally that that's like the greatest betrayal. Is that not the greatest betrayal? To betray your spouse, the person you've covenanted with for life. And what it did between Jose and Gomer, it created alienation. It broke the relationship. And there was now this problem, this this alienation that was between them. She was estranged from him, there was a relational gap. You could say there was now a relational debt, that she owed him this kind of relational debt because she had betrayed him and broken the relationship. But not only that, in their culture, to commit adultery, the penalty in the Old Testament was death. So the price she should have paid for that should have been death. And the thing that she desperately needed from her husband... Because he, ha- he could have taken her to the authorities and had her put to death. The thing she desperately needed was reconciliation through forgiveness. I'm going to talk about this again in a minute, but I, this to me is a really important point. In a broken relationship, many relationships, it's, it's broken by both parties, right? They both do something. But if somebody were to commit adultery and, and abandon the other person and betray them, for that relationship to be reconciled, who is the key person, who is the one person that reconciliation will not happen unless that one person is willing to act, who would that person be? Who would you say? The one wronged. Because the one who did the wrong can come to them and ask for reconciliation, but unless the one wronged is willing to forgive, reconciliation will never happen. The key person in any broken relationship is the one wrong. But not only that, we also know from their culture that she became a a prostitute and ended up becoming a slave, probably to this guy that she went with. And just like now, in sexual trafficking, slavery is so common. It was back then. that women who ended up um, committing adultery frequently ended up becoming prostitutes and enslaved to a man who got the money, just like so many times it is now. And so she not only had this penalty of death on her, but she became a slave to that person. So she became enslaved, and what she was needing was rescue. Specifically, she needed to be ransomed and redeemed. You know, to ransom is to pay a price to get somebody back. And the word redeem is specifically a word of buying a slave back. The only way to get a slave back, you don't go just take a slave. Because that, whoever had owned her, owned her. He was her property. And the only way Hosea could get her back, the only way she could get back, is she had to be ransomed, she had to redeemed, be redeemed with a price. Do you guys remember what the price was that he had to pay for her? It was 30 pieces of silver. That was the price of a slave at that time. Anytime there needs to be reconciliation and rescue, forgiveness, ransom, redemption... The person who does that, in this case Hosea, I want just to make clear, they have to pay a price. Reconciliation takes a price. Have you ever forgiven somebody? You pay a price, don't you? Humiliated, wronged, and for you to swallow the pride or whatever and to, to, to take on humility, that you pay an internal price to offer forgiveness. It costs. It's hard. That's why it's so hard to do. So not only did he have to pay that internal price to reconcile with her, to offer her forgiveness, if that's what he wanted to do, but to rescue her, he had to pay a ransom price to redeem her back. It was going to cost him something to get her back. So again, who's the key person in all of this? Who is the only one that can truly bring reconciliation? Who is the only one that can bring that rescue and redemption? Who would it be? Is it, is it Gomer? Can she do this to herself? No, has to be Hosea. It has to be Hosea. He's the only one. It has to come from Him. Because that's how relationships work. So let's talk about, can I bring this out to our relationship with God? With Hosea and Gomer in mind. Because we've rejected God. We've abandoned Him. Lived life for ourselves, pursuing other things. We've committed spiritual adultery. We've given our heart to things besides Him. And that's cosmic betrayal because He's the creator of the universe, to betray the creator of the universe. That's like sin, that's like on a cosmic scale. That's how wrong that is. And Isaiah 59, 2 says that this spiritual adultery that we all do, this cosmic betrayal, that this sin, it is our sin that it separates us from God. Just like Homer and, I mean, Hosea and Gomer, our sin separates us from God. And it creates alienation between us and them, us and Him just like between Hosea and Gomer. Estrangement, there's now a relational gap, there's a relational debt that I owe God for my sin. And that sin has dishonored God and has broken the very relationship that I was created for. The very thing I was created for has been broken because of my rejection of Him. And ironically, this pursuit of other things we talked about this a lot with idols. This pursuit of other things only leads us down the path towards brokenness and utter ruin. And I'm not going to go over all, in all the details the way living my life for other things leads to brokenness and utter ruin, and ultimate ruin. But I do want to say this. The Bible says that even for us, the penalty of our sin is death. Just like in the Old Testament for Gomer, the penalty of her adultery was death, the penalty of sin against our Creator is death. Romans 6:23 says the penalty of sin is death. That sin against the creator of the universe to reject that relationship is a capital crime. It is high treason, the highest form of treason. That's why Ephesians 1:15 says that we are dead in our sins. That all of us in our sins that we're dead. And not only do we have the penalty of death that we carry by the rejection of Him, but we actually become slaves in that. Jesus said a very profound thing in John 8, 34, where He said, I tell you the truth, he that sins is a, what? Is a slave to sin. He that sins is a slave to sin. And I've done this passage in Romans before, but I want to do it again. If you're not totally convinced of the reality of this, I want you to hear the words of Paul, and I want, as I read this, I want you to ask the question, does that not describe my heart and my experience? Here's what he said, I'm a slave to sin. I do not understand, let me, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the bad things I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So I find this law at work, when I want to do good, evil is right there within me. What a terrible man I am, who will rescue me? I want to highlight the things that even the first time I encountered this grabbed my attention. I do not understand what I do. What I hate to do, I do. Anybody here, like, like, does Paul watch my life? Does he see into my heart? Or how about this? The bad things I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. What I want to do, I do not do. Does that also not resonate with your own life and experience? What I do is not the good I want to do. Because I'm a slave to sin. This is... Prior to knowing him. This is when I'm living in rejection of him. And so Paul asks the question: who will rescue me? So this rejection of God, the relationship, pursuing other things, living life for myself, just leads towards brokenness and ultimate ruin, ultimate ruin. I'm broken by my sin. Our sin brings death and it brings slavery and ruin to our lives. And frankly, we risk ultimate ruin. We risk eternal separation from God. If we do not fix this broken, this broken relationship, if this does not get repaired, we risk ultimate ruin, eternal separation from God. And that's why Jesus said to a group of people in John 8, if you die in your sins, if you die still in that condition of your sins, separated from me, if you die in your sins, you cannot come to where I'm going. And do you know where he was going? Do you know what he was talking about? He was talking about how he would be going up to, to heaven to the Father soon. So if you die in your sins, you cannot, you cannot be with him eternally in heaven. So we have this relational gap. And here's what people try to do to fill that relational gap. And this is what I told you last week when I was in Hayes that I observed from my friends who all went to church, most of them. Um that their whole idea was the way to close this gap was through religion. It was through doing our own good things, that if I do enough good things, I can kind of make this relationship with God right again. But I want to tell you that this gap between us and God is insurmountable by us. Religion and doing good things will never close the gap. It will never fix the relationship. Romans 4, 5 says, people cannot do any work which will make them right with God. Isn't that humbling? I cannot do anything that will close the gap, that will bring me into the right relationship with God. Nothing. Not going to church, not giving to the poor, not helping old ladies across the street, not joining Boy Scouts, not showing up at Christmas Eve services or Easter services. There's nothing I can do that will make me right with God. I think it's human nature that we think that the gap between us and God is pretty easy to cross over. If I just do enough good things, I can kind of close that gap. I think that's how most people think. When I grew up, most of the people who were religious, that's what they thought. Even initially, as I started to explore God and I realized I had a gap, initially I thought, oh, I could close that gap until I started reading the Bible and realizing I couldn't. So what we think is a small gap that we can close is actually like the Grand Canyon, How many of you guys have ever been there? I went when uh, I think I was five. And I thought I remembered it, um, but we went back a few years ago as a family. And that thing was more huge than I remembered when I was a kid. The distance from one side to the other, I couldn't believe how far the gap was from one side to the other. And I think this is what the Bible says is reality for us. That gap between us as God is like the Grand Canyon. And if you try to close that gap, what's going to happen? Right? Not good. Because the gap between us and God is like the Grand Canyon. It's an insurmountable. And it doesn't matter if you're Bob Beeman, who in my age was kind of the guy who had the record. I don't remember who it is now. Powell, I think. 28 feet, something like that is the record. It doesn't matter if you're Powell or if you're me who can jump three feet. Um... It doesn't matter what human being is trying to jump across the Grand Canyon, every single individual is going to fall short. Is that not right? By a huge margin. Because this gap between me and God is insurmountable. I can't close that gap. So, this is us, alienated from God. And just like Gomer, what do we desperately need? Reconciliation. And how does reconciliation come? Through what? It comes through forgiveness. Daniel 9, 18, I love this verse. God, we do not come to you because we are righteous. I do not come to Him because I am righteous. I only come to Him because of His what? His mercy. Only because of His great mercy. Not only are we alienated from Him, but we are enslaved to sin. So we have to be rescued, just like Gomer had to be rescued. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that we cannot save ourselves. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, lest I would brag and boast about it. We cannot save ourselves, the Bible is clear. So we must be rescued. I must be ransomed. I must be redeemed, just like Gomer. I needed reconciliation to God, I realized. That's what the Bible taught me. God, yes, had created me for relationship. Longed for my love, but I had rejected that love. Though he was for me, I was not for him. My sin separated me from God, alienated me from him. I became enslaved to sin. From birth, the Bible says, from birth, born that way. I realized I desperately needed reconciliation to be brought back to him. And that only happens again through what? What? forgiveness. It only happens through forgiveness. And I realized that I was a slave to sin. Paul's words ring so true to me. And the only way to get set free if you're a slave is somebody has to come and rescue you. They have to pay the price. They have to redeem and ransom you. The Bible teaches we desperately need new life. We need to be forgiven and we need to be set free. but a price has to be paid. Just like with Gomer, a price has to be paid. There has to be a sacrifice and there has to be a substitute. Because see, Hosea was a substitute for Gomer. He didn't deserve to pay that price, right? He had to become her substitute and paid what she owed. And I need a substitute just like she did. We all do. And tell me, just like with uh, with Jose and Gomer. Who's the only person that can fix this? Who's the only one? Who's the only one that can offer forgiveness? It's got to be God, right? It's got to be God. Who's the only one that can pay the price? Who's the only one that can sacrifice? Who can be the substitute? Who can redeem and ransom? It's only Him. He's the only one that can do it. It must, it is God, I'm sorry, it is God who must be the sacrifice. He must be the sacrifice. It is God who must be the substitute. God must be the one to pay the ransom. He must be the one to provide redemption. He must be the one to come to rescue. He must be the one who pays the price. It can be no other way. And so I want to leave you with a really important thought. I'm not leaving you with three words today. You're going to have to come back next week. Is that all right? So come back next week for the next three. But I'm going to leave you with something that I found that's one of the most profound things I ever learned, and it's this, the good people don't go to heaven. The Bible's so clear. Good people don't go to heaven. And if you think that the way to get to heaven is by being a good person, you'll never get there that way. Because it's about relationship, and it's a broken relationship, and the gap is insurmountable. There is nothing, not enough good I can do to close the gap. It's got to be closed by Him through forgiveness and by rescue. So good people don't go to heaven. Do you know who gets to go to heaven? Forgiven people go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. That's one of the most profound things I learned from the Bible. Because the Bible's not about religion. It's about what? It's about relationship. A God who is for me, who created me, who loves me, who longs for relationship, and wooed me for years, probably without me knowing. And I, I, yet, I still rejected the relationship. I lived life for myself, pursuing other things, loving other things, committing spiritual adultery, dishonoring Him, breaking the relationship I was created for. getting a price of death on my head, becoming a slave to sin, unable to rescue myself, unable to redeem myself. Good people don't go to heaven, only forgiven people do. Daniel 9, 18, God, we do not come to you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy, and mercy is a forgiveness work. We're created for a real and intimate relationship with God. God is for us. But there's bad news. Sorry, but it's reality. We've rejected God and we have lived life for ourselves pursuing other things. And our sin has dishonored God and has broken the very relationship for which we were created. And ironically, this pursuit of other things has only led us down the path toward brokenness and ultimate ruin. We desperately need a Savior. We desperately need a rescuer. We need so badly one to come and deliver us. So, next week, we're going to take up that theme from there. We're going to talk about who is the rescuer and how did God do that. Can we pray? Father, first, thank you for, again, just this reminder this week of the reality, not just that you're for us, but of the reality of my own sin and how I personally had rejected relationship with you and lived life for my own self. And just the gratitude that I have that though this relationship gap between me and you was unsurmountable. and I needed so badly to be reconciled and rescued that you are the one who is willing to do that. Lord, if there's anybody even here today who doesn't, this reality is new to them, um, I just pray that You would be speaking their hearts and continuing to woo them. And if nothing else, Lord, may we leave here knowing that good people don't go to be with You, that only forgiven people do. So we want to worship You for the kind of God You are. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.